You're listening to the Sill Podcast Perspectives on Art and Technology with Peter Noche and Harry Posner. Episode 35 Riffing on Music Talking about Revolution. Beethoven is a great place to start. Beethoven? What Beethoven. Do you mean? Why? Because Beethoven's breakfast was coffee. No. Yes. You can look this up on the internet. Okay. He made it himself yeah. with great care. He determined there would be 60 beans per cup, <laughs> and he often counted them out one by one for a precise dose. A real bean counter, eh? A real bean counter. Meantime, wow. I'm just going to enjoy my Hockley Valley coffee. <laughs> Just like Beethoven. That's something you and Beethoven have in common. <laughs> <laughs> mm. Excuse me. So, Harry, why don't you kick us off with a little bit of history since we're on the subject of music and the music revolution. Yeah. We're talking kind of about music that changed history, composers, musicians mm. that influenced our times and our lives. And let's go back. Let's talk about the genius of Mozart. These classical musicians who lived in the 1700s, for example, Beethoven crossed the century between the 18th and 19th century. Right. And his Fifth Symphony is something everyone on the planet can hum. At least the first four or five bars. Handel's Messiah. Hallelujah. Floating down the river. Handel's Messiah. Water music, that sort of thing. So as classical musicians go, these three in particular, I think, are revolutionary in the sense of how long-lasting they are and how ingrained in our psyches yes. they are, their music. Mm-hmm. Yes. Remember the flight of the bumblebee? Sure. Which became uh, a pop hit? Yes, Rimsky-Korsakov was the yeah. original. I, when I was a kid, the very first album I owned was a gathering of classical music and Flight of the Bumblebee was on that recording. That was the very first album I got. Beethoven was on it and yeah. that sort of thing. Sibelius, some of these other musicians. I was a child in the 50s, so rock and roll was coming up then. I didn't really get much of that. I got classical to start with, which was fabulous. Moving from the 18th to 19th century into the 20th century, we're moving quickly here. I mean, yeah. all of these things are preceded by really churchy music, Gregorian chant and that sort of right. thing, all church-related. Music was essentially church-related until recently in our history, right? Mm-hmm. Here's one revolutionary moment in music. 1913 in Paris, Stravinsky's The Rite of Spring, a ballet choreographed by the great Nijinsky, Nijinsky. for the Ballet Russe, opens in Paris. There are riots, people leaving, screaming. Mm-hmm. Uh, why? Because the music was harsh and dissonant and loud and shrieking, uh, complex rhythms. The dancing, the choreography was all these people jumping up and down, plodding across the stage, making jerking movements. Nothing like classical ballet. It was like a revolutionary mm-hmm. moment that shocked the world of that time. And in a sense, it was a precursor to the whole modern world of music mm-hmm. and the way art was seen 
and enacted. So you've got that happening then. Between the two wars was a very fertile time. Yes. You have jazz, the early jazz. It came out of the roaring 20s. 20s, 30s, uh, jazz and blues. The Depression. Yeah, people like uh, Robert Johnson and Lead Belly in the 1930s, Mm -hmm. you know, Hellhounds at My Heels, Lead Belly's Goodnight Irene, those kinds of music. You had jazz tunes like Strange Fruit. Give it a a little bit of history on that one because that's a really interesting piece. Well, it's about, basically, it's about the lynching of blacks in America. And so Strange Fruit, the fruit, are these bodies of black people it was Billy Holiday right Billy Holiday extremely powerful song especially because it's sort of semi-hidden behind the words not only uh, powerful but gutsy given the times in the deep south of the US absolutely yeah well, she was really sticking her neck out absolutely so you have musical greats like Louis Armstrong happening Errol Garner all these jazz greats are coming out of that tradition mm-hmm. and then out of jazz you have the second world war is happening And Frankie Sinatra. Well, Frankie, but just before Frankie, you have the Mm -hmm. swing bands. Right. Frankie's a titch after. The big bands, Benny Goodman, Buddy Rich, Tommy Dorsey, Duke Ellington, upbeat, optimistic music, great morale booster Mm -hmm. for an America that had entered the war. And frankly, when people ask me, would you like to live in another time period for their music? And I always say the swing period. I'd love to live during the swing period and be live at those concerts, hearing those bands just wailing Just to experience wailing. that energy. Oh, yeah. yeah. It was such a shift. So it was good. such a huge shift, uh, yeah. really, in terms of freedom as mm. well. Uh, instrumentation, coordination, the whole composing aspect, uh, it changed everything. And that's where... Frank Sinatra was born. Frank Sinatra, Ella Fitzgerald, Mm -hmm. uh, all of these great jazz singers coming out of that tradition. Now, I I realize that they're all part of that tradition, but the reason why I centered out Frank Sinatra is because he's really kind of almost a harbinger of rock and roll. Yeah, the sexy side of rock and roll, where the performer is a sex symbol. Mm -hmm. That really hadn't happened much until Frank took the stage and girls were fainting mm-hmm. at his presence, at his music. It was the first time that there was a sexual expression within the music. Yeah. So he's a precursor to the Madonnas and the Lady Gagas and the Michael Bublé's. Going earlier, Elvis the, Presley. Presley, of course. Yeah. Presley and Justin Bieber for the youngins right. these days. But Elvis Presley was really interesting because he also bridged the white and black almost legitimized it and was a crossover because there was a black audience that was engendered by Elvis Presley. That's right. So from jazz and blues, the blues speeded up, gives you rock and roll, rockabilly. And there's Elvis right there at the cusp taking that baton, among other people, not Mm -hmm. just Elvis. Guys like Buddy Holly. Chuck Berry. Chuck Berry. The beginnings of rock and roll. Which is the perfect setup for what transpires overseas on the docks of Liverpool. Sure. Late 50s. Early 60s, right. The sailors are bringing all the records, and Liverpool is the center of it all because at that time it was the major port in the world. Uh-huh. And the sailors that were coming off the ships were bringing all these American records, and these young Liverpudlians, as they were called, <laughs> were only too happy to receive these records from their fathers or uncles or brothers that were coming off these ships that had come from New York. Mm-hmm. And it began skiffle bands in England. Precursors. Which, uh, John Lennon was one of the group members of one of these skiffle bands that came up in the mid to late 50s. And it was in uh, July 6th, I believe, of 1957 at a fete 
FET. It was fate that he was at the FET. It was a fate that he was at the FET <laughs> and met Paul McCartney. Uh-huh. And never looked back. And never looked back. That brings us to the 1960s, the Beatle invasion. The, sorry, the British invasion, not the Beatle invasion. The, the British, British invasion, invasion, not just the Beatles. Who else was it? Jerry and the Peacemakers. Oh, the Rolling Stones. Herman and the Hermits, yeah. right? All of these incredible bands. With, mm -hmm. The Yardbirds. Yeah, great, great From where we musicians. got Eric Clapton and yeah. all these other great musicians that kind of went into their own. Yeah. At some point, and all of it, all of it, if you heard discussions from all of these individuals and groups, they all told you that the roots were all from that southern black mm -hmm. sound that was permeating through the U.S. in the 40s and 50s. Right, the Stones in particular were Stones influenced in particular, by yeah. early Beatles. Beatles, too, to a great extent. The interesting part about the Beatles specifically was that once they became known and started to grow out of that music era... Many experts were comparing them to the Beethovens and Mozarts of yeah, the world. I guess you could say they're comparable in terms of their influence. Influence. Not only musically, where they're incredibly creative and unique, mm -hmm. but the way they looked, the Beatles cut, the clothing they wore, it spawned a fashion revolution in its own way, too. So people like the Beatles, people like David Bowie, yes. influenced the other arts, the other design arts by the way they carried themselves on stage and in the world, right? Yes. And Bowie especially, too, because of his kind of androgynous look. Right. The whole sexual identity thing comes up with him. And the sexual thing was big because a big part of music was this sexual transition. Mm -hmm. It was right after birth control with the pill. There was a huge change in teenagers. For the first time, they had money. It was the first generation that was actually making a conscious decision to break away from their parents. Up until the mid-50s, sons emulated their fathers. You know, sure. They dressed like them. They went to work in the same factories. And for mm -hmm. the first time, they were saying, no, we can do our own thing. And the Beatles were at the heart of this. There were other groups as well, but they're the ones that really brought it to the forefront. Yeah. And talk about the sexual thing. When Elvis was on stage in the early parts of his career, the... Television stations were ordered to only shoot him from the waist up. Ed Sullivan, 1956. There you go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So then in the 1960s, we have the Vietnam War getting going. Mm -hmm. And now you've got sort of the hippie movements there happening yeah. with drug experimentation, free love, make love, not war yes. uh, kind of thing. You've got your folk singers coming out of the tradition of Woody Guthrie in the 30s and 40s, 40s yeah. Dust Bowl, singing about the common man, the social issues being brought into music in a big way. Mm -hmm. And then you have sort of poetry being brought into folk music. Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan, Leonard Cohen, mm -hmm. who was a poet in a way first, a musician second. So poetry is brought into the mix, into lyrics. It was just a phenomenal you know? time. I mean, you and I grew up during that time. We were kind of young when it began. But it got us right in the middle of our teens. Yeah, I was between, say, 9 and 19 was the 60s for me. I was 14 when Sgt. Peppers came out. Yeah, my father passed away in 64. Kennedy passes away in 63, mm -hmm. I think it is. And Vietnam is happening. And all of this music, Dylan, like a rolling stone is happening. That, John Glenn orbits the Earth. Yeah, the moon landing, of course. So Moon landing didn't happen until 69, but it was still in that era. Yeah, and it wasn't like a musician 
Dylan, you know, right. <laughs> influenced that in particular. <laughs> right. But um, Dylan's choice to go electric, I think, happened towards the end of the 60s, if I'm not mistaken. The Beatles were influential yeah, sure. in Bob Dylan's decision to go electric. Right, right. And I have to say that as a teenager, I was working in my parents' cigar store on Young Street back in those late 60s. Mm. And whenever Like a Rolling Stone came on, oh, I yeah. was just riveted. I just love that music. There's something about Some it. Some still so consider that the greatest song of the 20th century. I think it's century. one of the greatest, along with Lennon's Day in the Life, mm-hmm. which is on Sgt. Pepper, isn't it? Yeah, and Sgt. Pepper is considered the album of the 20th century. Yeah, I, I would have to agree with that. It's, yeah. it's, uh, well, I, certainly from an innovation standpoint. Oh, yeah. Certain albums, I wore out certain albums. Uh, Sgt. Pepper was one. Dylan's Desire was mm-hmm. another album. I wore it out. The tunes, every tune I loved from da-da-da-da-da-da-da, Mozambique, da-da-da-da, is aqua blue. And then uh, one more cup of coffee for the road. Right. All those great, great tunes. Oh, I know, and they bring back so many memories. Oh, Hurricane was on that. Yeah. Tremendous, tremendous uh, album. You have um, Buffalo Springfield, oh, um, Stills, Nash & Young, yeah, yeah. Uh, Four Dead in Ohio. Yes. So, well, that was uh, after the Kent University killings of those four students. That's yeah. right. Yeah. So all these protest songs emerged at that time as well. That tradition of protest really coming out of Woody Guthrie. Let me give you a little bit of melodic spin on Box Box today. All right, let's do it. Box Box. So, what's your story? George Martin, his influence was so mighty. He wasn't there to put his stamp on it, he was there to make this the best recording. You can cut, you can edit, obviously you can slow down or speed up your your tape, you can put in backward stuff. And this is the kind of thing you can do on recording, which you obviously couldn't possibly do live, because it is, in fact, making up music as you go along. The songs were already incredible and brilliant, but with George's guidance, it developed an appetite in each of those four that made them greater than they knew they could be. I'm in G, but it'll be in F. It goes E minor to A seventh to D minor. My dad was Ready. trying to look for influences outside of the, the realm of pop music. They wanted to push the boundaries of sound. They wanted to create something new all of the time. He was open to anything. There were no rules. The only rules were to make great sounding records. Okay, man. Yesterday all my troubles seem so far away Now it looks as though they're here to stay He said, what do you think then? I said, well, there's nothing we can do to put on top of this that's going to make it more beautiful except perhaps some strings. Yesterday Love was such an easy game to play Now I need a place to hide away His knowledge of classical music and his arrangements are still the greatest that have ever been done in in the context of rock music. Box, box. 
Then you have rhythm and blues in the 60s really taking off too. Yeah. Growing up in the 60s, I ran into a period where a lot of my friends thought I was off my stick because uh, <laughs> they were all listening to the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, which I was listening to too, but I went to... A lot of that uh, Stax Records and Otis Redding and Sam and Dave. And I really... Uh, Sam Cooke. Well, Sam Cooke was a little earlier. I was younger, but a lot of groups were being created from that gospel sound. And then, of course, they made it more commercial and went more heavier beat. Um, Motown was kind of like the more commercial, softer version of Supreme Temptations. Yep. And then you had your Sam and Dave's and your Otis Redding's. It was a music that had immediate appeal to me immediate the rhythms it was the rhythms and when they say soul that word really expresses it well mm -hmm. it was a feeling yeah and, and revolutionary in that it took a religious kind of music gospel music and made it into something that everyone could feel and enjoy regardless of what religion they might be mm -hmm. following mm -hmm. so yeah rhythm and blues the righteous brothers i remember them came along I, they were one of my other favorites whenever bill medley and bobby hadfield launched into you've lost that, that love and feeling feel, now it's mm -hmm. gone gone oh i just ugh. that's what i loved about that era was the sheer eclectic nature of music during that time. I don't recall any time in my lifetime yeah. that there was so much going on mm -hmm. creatively in terms of the diversity of music. You had also the beginnings of Bob Marley and the Whalers were kind of doing their thing reggae. coming up at that point, bringing reggae to North America when really hadn't really experienced much of that. You know, With a reggae. lot of social consciousness. Yeah, reggae coming out, of, coming out of ska, and there's dub, all those traditions right. in the West Indies. Mm -hmm. And uh, single-handedly, he and Peter Tosh as well, Peter Tosh, you know, yeah. I think brought reggae to the front and began an interest in world music, yeah. in music other than North American style stuff. So you get people like Ravi Shankar. Mm-hmm suddenly becoming really noticeable and people seeing the sitar in action. The Beatles used sitar in their music, thanks to George Harrison, I think. Right. They brought sitar music into their music. I think that one of my favorite tunes on Sgt. Pepper is, I forget the title My of Guitar it. Gently Weeps? No, not that one. Mm. It goes, nothing's gonna change my world. Da, 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 Deva. Just, uh, it melts me. And of course, my guitar gently weeps, as George Harrison. Yeah, I think he maybe he was the most spiritual in a way of the Fab Four. He introduced the other Beatles, the Rabbi Shankar and meditation. The Maharishi, and the Maharishi, yes. Their experimentation with drugs at the time. Yep. But the other three sort of waned off it in a few years. George maintained it right to the end of his life when he passed in 2001 at the age of 58. Now, staying with the Beatles for a sec, talk mm. a little bit about how they revolutionized the recording of music. Oh, they were instrumental in that respect. Just basic things, like even the way the studio functioned. Prior to the Beatles, the BBC standard was everybody in white coats, shirt and tie. The hours were set from such an hour in the morning to the hour in the afternoon with your standard tea breaks and mm -hmm. whatever. But everything was very formal. Yeah. 
When the Beatles came onto the scene and began to make the studio their home, where they got off the stage altogether in the mid-60s, they began, because of their popularity and because of what they were creating, they were difficult to say no to. So they started to ask, almost demand, mm -hmm. by the quality of their music and what they were doing to be able to record at any time. So right. oftentimes it'd be 10 o'clock at night, 1 o'clock in the morning. So the studios basically opened their doors mm -hmm. to allow this. And what about they had Sir George Martin at the time? And how did they do things differently technically in terms of how they recorded well, fortunately, George Martin had a lot of classical background, too, so he was very qualified. But their music and their youth was very different from anything that uh, George Martin had experienced up to that point. Right. Unbeknownst to a lot of people, they didn't have a lot of so-called training in music. In fact, John couldn't read a note mm -hmm. when they were at the studios in the beginning, but they knew what they wanted. So they had to basically describe to George Martin the types of sounds they were looking for and so on. So he was the one that actually guided them more than anything and, and put things together because mm -hmm. they would just explain to him in layman's terms what they wanted. And then, of course, he would go about the task of gathering musicians, mm -hmm. whether it be uh, an orchestra section, a tuba, whatever, French horn, and yeah. put it together until eventually they evolved to the point where they really started to mm -hmm. call everything. And he was basically their guide. And in the early days, didn't they record on four-track systems? Right. And technically, they didn't have any of the equipment they have today. Right. And they were also able to improvise a lot of the times. You hear stories of four or five lab technicians uh, hanging around the other corner around the post and then wrapping tape around three posts and using pencils and pens to guide this tape, which was no longer inside the machinery to do the type of work that they needed to do. Um, <laughs> basically, they just opened the door completely on recording and showing what was possible. Right. They broke limits. Yeah, yeah. Well, speaking of breaking limits, now you get into the 70s and you get a number of interesting developments in music, right? You get disco, for example, mm. which is reviled by many people and loved by many people. But it really, it revolutionized the way people danced and moved on the dance floor, the way they dressed. And that was usually the line for disco, by the way. If you liked the dance, you were okay with it. If you didn't like the dance, it was garbage. Right. But it's interesting that, <laughs> yeah. and at the same time, you have the development of screw you, punk Yep. The Ramones, Lou Reed, those guys, Patti Smith. And you had also heavy metal coming along, mm -hmm. too. Your ACDCs, your Bon Jovis coming along and really slamming away and bringing a kind of a violent energy to the stage. Rock and roll kind of stuff. And I remember going to see some early punk in the 70s in Toronto at a place called The Turning Point. And it was just insane, the energy, and but kind of a violent edge and unpredictability. Well, there's something else that happened in between. Back in the 60s and 70s, most groups, most musicians really got their push from radio stations. Mm -hmm. So radio stations had to change their approach as well in order for a lot of these things to develop because there were a lot of restrictions as to what could be played. Right. Not only restrictions as to content, but also the time. Most recordings at the time were two, three minutes mm -hmm. on the average. Yes. And then you have the Beatles coming along with The Day in the Life and other tunes. You have The Doors with Light My Fire. That was, I think, six Six or so minutes long in its original form. Well, there was a huge transition from 45s to LPs uh, mm -hmm. up until the Beatles, more or less. They were the ones that really pushed LPs to the forefront. Up until that point, LPs were not doing very well relative to singles. Hmm. They also changed the actual recording industry and the entire economy of music. 
because they were selling at such a rate mm-hmm. that companies were not accustomed to experiencing. Right. And just remember, in April of 1964, they held the top five spots on the record charts. That's right. I remember that. I remember looking at those uh, lists and going, Beatles, 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 Beatles. Yeah. <laughs> Holy moly. Right. So you focus on the music, but they changed the economy. They changed yeah. the social awareness. They changed so many other things in that respect. And the other thing they kind of were the forerunners of was the idea of, of albums as conceptual works of art. Exactly. Right. Sgt. Pepper is a conceptual album, you'd have to say. this kind of thematic thing running through it. Not just the music, the art itself on the cover. And the art Yeah, which garnered a lot of uh, publicity because people were saying, is Paul McCartney dead? That was the album cover where they thought there was all these people on the cover, right? Yeah, what's Hitler doing on the cover of the Yeah, yeah, and they they were playing music backwards and they were trying to figure out. (laughs) So a very interesting phenomenon. Very experimental time. Sure. And those album covers, by the way, in general, gave a lot of artists a canvas that they'd never had before. And freedom. To play on. Freedom. Yeah, absolutely, to do all kinds of crazy things. And there's some incredibly brilliant album art. Mm-hmm. Um, if you talk to a lot of people who grew up in that era, they will tell you that one of their favorite pastimes was to go out, buy an album, mm-hmm. and actually put the record on and sit for sometimes hours at a time, going over the album, looking at all the information on the album cover. The liners. Liner liners, notes. exactly. So art to that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And then you've got the other sort of uh, revolution in music happening in the 1980s mm. when the Moog synthesizer is created and it starts to be used in music. The Eurythmics, Duran Duran, some of these bands used uh, the Moog synthesizer in their music, right. which, you know, electronicized things in, in a big way. You got beyond analog instruments. Yeah, and it also allowed for kind of big sound. Uh, the Moody Blues, Super Tramp, these big sound, Yes, uh, Relayer is my favorite album of Yes. Pink Floyd. Yes. I grew up in the 70s lying on the floor of residence at York University in the dark, high, listening to Dark Side of the Moon, Genesis, Foxtrot, these incredible albums, and just soaking it in. Lots of musicians are playing for, for charity or playing for certain causes and that sort of thing. Well, music's a universal language. Music is something that everyone can understand and relate to. Yeah, who can't understand ooh, ee, ooh, ah, ah, ting, yeah. tang, walla, walla, bing, bang. Ooh, ee, ooh, ah, ah, ting, tang, walla, walla, bing, bang. <laughs> who can't understand that? That's a w- <laughs> I can't. <laughs> <laughs> They're coming to take me away. Yeah. <laughs> remember those songs? Yeah, yeah I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> those are tunes that I, I, yeah. I grooved yeah. on. Those but you see, the, the thing that we're doing right now to me is a big part of music yeah we're in a state of enjoyment you're laughing your mind is going through a process as you're reliving those moments that laughter that was just exuded by your discussion on that particular song is all this flush of memories that comes back it's not just the song itself sure absolutely because they remind me of days when i was more carefree in some ways and less 
aware of the world as this heavy place to live in, which you mm-hmm. become aware, more aware of as you grow older. Yes. So music often will sustain you through these times, these difficult times. Well, what about you? What, any music that sustained you through a difficult Oh, period? for sure. I, I can still recall discovering headphones. For me, it was a way of cutting out noise and taking myself into a world that negated much of the blackness that was surrounding me at the time, whether it was... Uh, parents in an argument or the noise of traffic, whatever it was. With music, I could just put those headphones on. And and I typically did not use high volume. I kept them at a moderate level. I could just go into myself and really uh, listen to the notes and what they were saying. And Mm -hmm. yeah, definitely. I used it as an antidepressant. I used it as a way to calm myself down. If I had been specifically agitated by an experience or an individual throughout the day, I would always go back to the music. Well, and you also educated your ears. Yes. To listen in a certain way that a lot of people don't when they don't listen on headphones carefully. They just listen on the radio or on their computers. Right. You don't really get the nuances often in the music. And the thing that had formed for me back then, and to this day, I do care about the quality of the sound. So white noise Mm -hmm. or crackling. I mean, some crackling, which is inherent in a disc, for example. That's not the kind of crackling I'm talking about. Right. But yeah, the music was a way to go into another world. And, you know, for a lot of uh, black America in the 90s, hip hop and rap, the music of the streets became a way to get out of the ghetto-like conditions they felt oppressed with. Mm -hmm. It's more about social issues and telling it like it is and had breakdancing happen in that same period, Mm -hmm. this this incredibly athletic kinds of whirling on your head and that sort of thing happening in the 90s as well. So the streets come alive with art. But I think a lot of that was also based in just excessive testosterone expressing itself in the form of dance. Gangs took to this style. Instead of fighting with knives and chains in the streets, they would have dance contests. How refreshing is that? In the 50s, they'd cut each other. In the 90s, they're they're doing breakdance competitions. I'd rather have that than the other. Oh, absolutely. Now when industry begins to recognize it as well, it's not just something on the streets. There's awards for it and so on. Right. You're legitimizing it. Sure. The Grammys and all that comes along. Mm -hmm. And in the 21st century, what can we say? We're at the age, you and I, where we're not as uh, up on... The most recent, you know. No, I feel like I've really fallen behind in the last, I would say, 15, 20 years. Today, there's a lot of talent, but I find that it's like a a uni style. It's more difficult to differentiate between Mm -hmm. music. It may not be the case. It may be me, but that's the way I'm experiencing it. Whereas in the 60s and 70s, it was just so rich in diversity. Yeah, a lot of ooh, baby, baby. (laughs) Well, there was ooh, baby, baby on one hand, and then there was, uh, you know, pure instrumental. I remember a song called Apache, uh, bongo drums. And and, uh, then you'd go to, you know, Joan Baez, and then you'd go to Sam and Dave, and then you Mm -hmm. would go to... Peter and Gordon. Then you go to Supertramp. Yeah, it was all over the map in terms of styles. You could find something for every mood and every setting. And we mustn't forget, too, to talk a little bit about musicians that broke the mold, Mm avant-garde musicians, Arnold Schoenberg, people like John Cage, who came along in the 60s, 70s, 80s, who created concerts where silence was incorporated into the concert And the silence was a kind of music because Mm -hmm. it wouldn't be total silence. You'd be hearing 
sounds from the audience, from the building around you. Right. And he'd incorporate that randomness. It was into, part of the composition. Into his compositions. Mm-hmm. Or he'd have the musicians spread out all around the hall and, and encourage the audience to walk around the hall and listen to the music from different vantage points so that every single person who went to that concert got a different experience sure. of that composition. So musicians like that that dare to shake it up and do something radically different need to be acknowledged as well in this story of musical revolution. If music be the food of love, play on. Play on. And in the end, the love you take is equal to the love you The Sill Podcast, Perspectives on Art and Technology, is a Connecting Dots Media production. Available at thesillpodcast.com.